Uh, hey, as, uh, as China comes up to read our passage uh, for the morning, um, I want to recommend a resource. We haven't done this in a while, but we, we really value reading, right? Um, and so um, one that I would recommend, there's a series of, uh, of books uh, published by Crossway called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. They're really short, really simple reads, um, and there are probably like eight or nine of them that are published and a few that are about to be coming out over the next couple of months. And so this one happens to be on work um, and our labor in the Lord. Really incredible resource. Uh, I recommended this on Wednesday night to a group of college students that were uh, here studying through the book of Acts. And I told them what I will tell you is that, like, from what I've read, it's really great. I've only gotten through, like, three pages because I'll read and then it's just, like, taking notes. And so um, really great series of books. Uh, I'll uh, leave this uh, on the information desk so you can check it out. This is my copy. So um, if you open it up, it is not new. You'll see some underlines and things like that. But feel free to thumb through. Um, really, really incredible, uh, incredible resource. So um, I'll recommend that before China takes us to uh, Mark chapter 12. We're closing out our time uh, in Mark 12 this morning. And so, um, man, I feel like we've been in Mark 12 for a while, China. But here we are. So um, if you would open up to Mark chapter 12, uh, we're going to be reading from verse 35 through 44. That is the, um, the end of uh, the chapter. So um, if you would open up and follow along with us as China reads. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the, that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Awesome. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your word and um, just for the time together with your people this morning. We're grateful uh, for all that we have to learn from Mark chapter 12, and we are grateful for your faithfulness um, to teach us by way of your spirit. And so um, help this to be a time of encouragement and conviction for our hearts um, as we again uh, this week celebrate the work of Christ for us. And it's in the name of Jesus uh, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, hey, here we are. Uh, we're coming off of a, uh, a really interesting section in Mark chapter 12 from last week in which we saw Jesus presented with this question uh, from a really curious scribe who is uh, inferring about the most important command in terms of practice, right? We talked last week about how as this scribe uh, approaches Jesus that there are a handful of 
thoughts about what led him to approach Jesus the way that he did. Some commentators would say that he uh, was encouraged to do so by religious leaders who were gathered around observing that which Jesus had been saying. Um, Others say that he just happened to be listening in and he recognized, again, the authority of Christ. And so uh, being most interested in this particular topic, given his occupation, he approaches Jesus and he asks him um, of the... uh, 300 plus laws that we have that have been uh, categorized in terms of importance, which ones are, which one is most important in terms of practice? To which Jesus responds, Love God with your entire self, right? With everything that you are. Now, why do we emphasize that? Because it's going to be important given where we go this morning and what we see from the widow in terms of her offering to. The Lord. But as you think about what this looks like to love God with your entire self, we can imagine it like a marriage, right? Which is why I think there is this imagery that we see throughout uh, the Old and New Testament in which God's relationship with his people is described as a marriage. All right, when you get married, what do you do? Will you stand before uh, a, a pastor, right, and, and witnesses, And you say yes to one, and in saying yes to one, you say no to everyone else, right? That's what it looks like to to be married. And as we we consider what Christ uh, says as it relates to the most important law in terms of practice, he says, I mean, it's saying yes to God, and it's saying no to everything else, right? It's this pursuit of holiness. It's this dying to self and this slaying of idols, including those constructed with our own hearts daily in order that we might pursue after and and worship the Lord and live as he calls his people um, to to live. But there was a second portion, wasn't there, right? There was a second uh, point that Jesus drew out. He refused to separate a love for God and a love for your uh, neighbor, And he says that the scribe, upon realizing that which Jesus has said, recognizing its authority, given that his heart, to some degree, in some capacity, I believe, has been open to receive what Jesus has to say, given what Jesus closes with, says, hey, you're right, this is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, right? Love for the Lord, right? And and this desire to pursue after holiness, his instruction for his people um, is God's desire. Now, we talked about our uh, inability, right, in and of ourselves to do that which Jesus is calling uh, these people um, to, to do. But in light of the response of the scribe, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. And in doing so, Jesus is calling the scribe back to the intent of the law. Right? It wasn't so much about the letter, which had been the practice primarily up until this point, but it's all about the intent. And the intent is to, to rest and remember God's heart. Right? To rest and to remember God's heart and his commitment to his people while at the same time, as Paul elaborates upon in his letter to the Galatians, the law shows us our need for a savior, right? It takes us by the hand and it walks us to our king. We saw how our love for God last week is enabled by his love for us, right? You guys remember this? This familiar? 
And our love for God is enabled by his love for us. We can love God only because he first loved us and placed his affection upon us. The relationship that was severed between you and I and God is restored by faith in the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Right, so let's understand it this way, that right vertical relationship with God is rooted in the faithfulness of Christ. Right relationship with God and our capacity to love him as he desires is rooted in the faithfulness of Christ. Only then to redeem broken horizontal relationships, making loving our neighbor something that can be realized and experienced and practiced, both those who are close and those who are far away, both geographically, right, and perhaps um, just in terms of where we are in life, right? Uh, their, their hate for you, perhaps, but in light of God's great love for those who had hated him and waged war against him, we are able to pursue after them uh, in, a, in, a, in a loving way, right? But we're not in last week. We've got to get to this week eventually, right? Um, and so this morning we're looking at the conclusion of Mark chapter 12. We could just, like, preach it all over again. Like, I feel like we need it. Like, I need it. We could just go back, read last week, preach it all over again, but there's a lot in the Bible, and so we're going to keep going. Um, This morning, three observations and one uh, big idea, one main idea, and the main idea is this. Our sovereign king, Jesus, right, takes the punishment of sin, he judges wickedness, and he elevates the humble. Our righteous king takes the punishment of sin, he judges wickedness, and he elevates the humble. Three observations that I want us to notice from this this concluding portion of Mark chapter 12. First, we see the sovereignty of Christ in verses 35 through 37. Right, And so what we know about Christ and who he is is informed by what we see from Jesus in verses 35 through 37. Right, He says, let me tell you about who I am. Right, Number two, a final or, or a warning from Christ. So we have the sovereignty of Christ. We have a warning from Christ in verses 38 through 40 to, uh, to the religious. To the religious. And then finally, we see an elevation by Christ in verses 41 through 44. And we're going to spend a lot of time in this last portion comparing and contrasting the relationship between the religious leaders, the scribes, and the widows, and uh, Jesus and the widow, Jesus and the scribes. We're going to be all over the place in this last portion, but there's a lot that we can do just in terms of of understanding how um, how in Christ we see um, righteousness and, and goodness and holiness. And so we'll talk about those things. But let's begin with the sovereignty of Christ in verses 35 through 37. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about uh, the character of Christ. He says this, the more that you know about Christ, the less you will be satisfied with superficial views of him. The more that you know about Christ, the less that you will be satisfied with superficial views of him. The position that I want us to consider is the tendency that we have to embrace certain views of Jesus that affect negatively the satisfaction that we find and feel in him. 
And at the core within this passage is the issue of authority and sovereignty. Through the first three verses, Jesus seeks to elevate the expectations of the people for the Messiah. And he he seeks to elevate, to lift up the expectations of the people for the Messiah, not by stripping away, but instead by building up. We've seen at various points throughout Mark's gospel, and we see it in other gospel accounts, this, this stripping away of false ideas. Right? This is your expectation of the Messiah, but allow me to, to peel these layers away and to reconstruct that which is right and appropriate. In this passage this morning, we don't see Jesus stripping away a false idea, but we see him elaborating upon what the people are willing to embrace and pointing towards its inability in and of itself. Right? He, he builds up right, the expectations of the people. Jesus is is going to, over the course of the next two verses, elevate the Messiah to more than simply the physical seed of David and earthly conqueror. He's he's going to lift up this idea, although Jesus is certainly these things, and he does so by beginning in verse 35, where Jesus now takes the questions to those that are gathered around him. Think about what we've seen over the past couple of weeks just from Mark chapter 12. We've seen individual after individual after individual approach Jesus with a question. And we explored last week the motives and the heart and the intent behind those who have approached Jesus in said manner. But what we see this morning is Jesus taking the question to them. It's a very different scene uh, from that which we've seen over the past few weeks as questions are presented to Jesus. And the question that we see presented is found in verse 35. Jesus is teaching in the temple and he says to those gathered around him, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And so what's the question that Jesus presents, that he he poses? Well, it's essentially this. Is the Messiah the son of David? A super practical question given the expectation for the coming king. Expectations that have been formed in God's people by way of passages such as Isaiah chapter 9. And I'm not going to read all of these, but you can make note of them and you can check them out later. Isaiah chapter 11, Jeremiah verse or Jeremiah 23 verses 5 through 6, which I will read that says this. Again, the prophet Jeremiah speaking of the coming king. The Messiah, the Christ, to rescue and redeem a people. Behold, Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in all the lands. Now, as we work through this last portion of Mark chapter 12, we are going to see injustice highlighted from Jesus as it relates to the way that the religious leaders have been treating, relating with uh, the widows of, of the temple, right? of, their, of their people. Verse 6 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The the Lord is our righteousness. And so we see that that God's covenant people are awaiting a, a son from the line of David who would rescue them. Only what we see based on the question presented by Jesus is that their expectation is incomplete. Okay, let's say it this way, that their expectation is more than incomplete. Their expectation is inadequate. And so Jesus looks to and quotes from the Psalm of David, Psalm 110, a heavily messianic psalm in which the inspiration of God's word along with the seniority of our Lord is emphasized. Okay, we see from Jesus a question that gets to the heart of the expectation of many of the Messiah that was to come. And so he presents this question, and the question is this, is the Messiah the son of David? And then he goes to Psalm 110, and he says this, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. And so there's the inspiration part, the the inspiration part, right? That that this is uh, authoritative, that he is led along by the Spirit to declare that which we see follows, which is this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, verse 37, Jesus says, calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And we see that those listening in, the great, the great throng, I wonder how many comprises the throng, just out of curiosity, right? But they, we see that this, this throng gathered around him hears him gladly. And so what does this mean? Right? Like, what are we to, to get from these, these verses? Well, we see in verses 36 and 37, David referring to his descendant under the inspiration of the Lord as his Lord. And so what does that mean? What is David doing? Well, remember, the question is, is the Messiah the son of David? To which we will see an answer presented. But we see this building up and this elaborating upon first. David refers to his descendant as his Lord. And in doing so, he recognizes an authority and a work that is greater than his own. So let's consider the position of David as Psalm 110 is spoken forth, that which Jesus references here in answering his question. Remember, this is his question that he's answering. David sits as king over God's people. David is, is a king ruling with a sovereign hand, and yet there is this supernatural realization from him, from David, That he who reigns eternally over the kingdom of God and the occupier of its throne, get this, is greater than he is. You see, while David's power and authority as king extends over the land, there is one whose sovereignty extends throughout all creation. David exercises unique power in that he is a king over God's people. But even David recognizes that there is one who possesses greater authority 
and greater sovereignty and greater power. And he speaks towards that in Psalm 110. It's a little bit like this, okay? The best way I think that we can maybe understand this is is as it relates to our own governmental institutions and systems here in America, okay? We have a president, right? And our president possesses a certain degree of power, a certain degree of sovereign power over the soil of this land. The power that he possesses, however, does not expand over into other lands. It doesn't expand over into other nations, and it certainly doesn't expand out into the cosmos, Okay, and so in a similar manner, David here recognizes his limited sovereignty. He recognizes his limited power as well as the supreme sovereignty of his Lord. And so the question is really super simple just when we begin to consider how Jesus answers it. The question presented by Jesus is this, is the Christ the son of David? To which we say the answer is unequivocally yes, because that has been the promise of the Lord. At the same time, we ask, is the Christ only the son of David? To which the answer is unequivocally no. He is not simply the son of David the same way that I am the son of John, although I am the son of John, we see that there is this relationship that is deeper as it relates to to Christ. And it points toward and emphasizes his deity. We see that while the Messiah would be his son, the son of David by descent, his descendant, he was also in this really mysterious way, senior to David. In terms of his his rank, he outranks David. Here, Christ speaks towards his superiority as Lord over not only David, but everything. This is a, a really important point. And it's one that is shaped by the scriptures as a whole. The the sovereignty of the Christ, Jesus, is a, let's say this, a canon concept in that God, in his word, constructs opening the eyes of the blind to see, injecting our hearts with faith. Passages like those that we've mentioned already, along with Old Testament passages like Ezekiel chapter 34 and 37, Hosea chapter 3, Amos chapter 9. Not only do we see it foretold of this coming Messiah, this king from the line of David, who will reign as a greater king, exercising a greater sovereignty than David, We see it affirmed in the New Testament, passages like John 1 and Philippians 1 and Ephesians 2 that speak towards the preeminence of our Christ, our King. Here it is. Our King exercises a preeminent power. And we see this emphasized in other places that we'll get to in just a moment. But these passages introduce us to and support the Christ Jesus Christ who saves us. 
And so practically, what does this mean? It means this, that if our expectations for the Christ, right, for our rescuer and redeemer, if our positions are not canonically informed, if they are not informed by the canon of Scripture, that which God has said, then they are inadequate. That is what Jesus is saying here. If our positions, if our expectations for the Christ are not informed by what we see from God's word, then they are inadequate. That's why Jesus takes us back to Psalm 110. Now, I want us to read an example of this. Feel free to turn here with me because this is going to be a, a little bit lengthier of a passage that we're going to read. Look with me at Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Now, this is following the the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. The Spirit of God has been poured out upon his people. And then we see Peter, during this week of, of Pentecost, proclaiming the gospel of Christ before a mass number of people. And in this sermon, we see reference to what Jesus has just said as it relates to this question and his deity, his sonship. Let's look with, uh, look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, this is, this is Peter, filled with the Spirit, preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God, verse 24, raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That is incredibly good news for all of God's people. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Again, this emphasis on the realization of David to the coming of the Christ. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now listen to what Peter has to say following this. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Okay, so here's the issue. Right? The, the, the elevation of David above a position that he is incapable or into a position that he is incapable of occupying. That's the issue as we come into Mark chapter 12. And that is what Jesus is addressing. Peter emphasizes this point by saying this. That the patriarch David both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this Day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so that which Peter references earlier on is all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. 
And of that, we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, here it is. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is emphasizing this point in Mark chapter 12. What we see Jesus saying in Mark chapter 12 informs that which Peter has to say on the day of Pentecost following the resurrection and ascension of, of Christ. Jesus, the son of David alone, cannot save us. Let me say that again. Jesus, the son of David alone, cannot save us. However, Jesus, son of David, son of God, righteous one, and king over all of creation can and does save. And we see Christ fulfilling Psalm 22 before the end of the week where we find ourselves contextually here at the cross. As fully God and fully man, Jesus does what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Jesus does what David could not do. God's word, here's what we're saying. All of this to say this, all of that to say this. Let's say it that way, right? God's word shapes our understanding of who God is. God's word shapes our understanding of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it shapes our understanding of who we are and what God demands and equips us for. His his sovereignty being non-negotiable when it comes to understanding his person, Jesus cements this point in verses 35 through 37. And finally, as we come to the end of this verse, we see the expression of the power of Christ produces gladnessness. Is that how you say that? Glad, being glad. To be glad, they're made glad. Let's say that, right? That they are made glad. We see that in verse 37. You can look there uh, with me. And the great throng heard him, what? Gladly. The question that I want us to consider is this. How much more complete is the gladness that we feel on this side of the cross, understanding to a greater degree the sacrifice of our sovereign king, who stoops, right? who, 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 who stoops to serve the undeserving, sacrificing himself in our place. We have to grasp the sovereignty of Christ. Secondly, we see a warning from Christ. Look with me at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Jesus So we're a bit of a transition here, but it all fits together really, really nicely. Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Jesus is about to just, I mean, he is is going to speak an incredibly difficult truth before these people here. 
who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, but who, verse 40, devour widows' houses. And for pretense, make long prayers. Jesus says that they will receive the greater condemnation. Here we see essentially Jesus condemning the teachers of the law. He condemns their behavior, beginning with their, their marching around, gallivanting around, if you will, right? In their long robes, verse 38, and occupying the most important seats right next to the scrolls in the synagogue. Right, enjoying the greetings that they receive in the marketplaces and the attention that they, that they get. But at the same time, failing to love God, failing to love their neighbor. Instead, they focus on defrauding widows and leaving them oftentimes destitute, only to then offer these long prayers, absent of substance or heart. evidenced by their corrupt practices. This is not God's desire for what it looks like to be in relationship with him, and it's not God's desire for what it looks like in terms of treatment of others. And we saw this last week. And what we notice now, it is that their behavior is not evidence of a right relationship with their creator. Whereas the scribes' knowledge of the law should have led them towards greater compassion, we see that the opposite is actually happening. And Jesus condemns their behavior. It hasn't led them toward compassion, but it's led them into greater corruption. In fact, we see, based on their relationship with the widow, which we'll compare and contrast in just a moment, that they're most concerned with what the widow has to to offer to them and not so much what becomes of the widow. Now, this is is starkly different from what we see as it relates to Jesus' behavior towards those who are oftentimes uh, seen as lesser than and taken advantage of. The trap that these find themselves in is very familiar for you and I, right? The trap that they find themselves in, the sin that they find themselves in is all too familiar as we see them not honoring God, but being most concerned with honoring themselves. This is a mark of of sin. This is a a mark of sin and a a practice that we are all too familiar with. Hey, look at me, right? Like, look at me and look at what I have and how holy and righteous I am and what I have and what I can say and the things that I I know. And we see that at the core, oftentimes, these can become self-glorifying as a result of viewing oneself through an improper lens. Right, viewing ourselves through through perhaps a, a cultural lens, right, or a geographical lens, or or a particular uh, a title lens, right. And so, I think that there are a handful of questions that we can consider, and one of them might be this: right, what place does God's word have in our lives? 
What, what place does God's word have in our lives? Does it inform our understanding of who we are and our need, our tendencies and our sin? Is our heart convicted in light of our behavior towards a holy God and his people? Are we bound by Christ and, and God's word or are we bound by self-desires and cultural expectations? Now, what a challenging idea. Are we bound? Are we bound by God's word? Are we bound by Christ or are we bound by self-desires and cultural expectations? We see that that is a major issue as it relates to those in places of power that Jesus is addressing here. And he says that they will receive greater condemnation. Why? Where does that come from? Well, because as we already said, they are most familiar with. Right? They're most familiar with God's desire for the behavior of his people, the heart that he desires to be on display as a means of glorifying himself and reflecting his goodness and his character. These are the guys that are supposed to be doing that. Only we see that it's not, that it's not present. In fact, it's quite the opposite that's taking, that's taking place. And so there's a warning here, isn't there? There's, there's a warning and there's an accountability that comes along with what we know, right? with what we know and, and, who, and who we are. Let's look, continue on to our last observation, and that is this. The elevation that we see by Christ of the widow in verses 41 through 44. It looks initially like there's not a lot of connection between all of these different sections, right? You start with this question and we talk about the sovereignty of Christ and then we go on to this, this issue of, uh, of broken relationship and, and evil desires on behalf of the religious leaders and Christ speaking towards the greater condemnation that is upon them as a result of what they know. And then we see this observance from Jesus of this widow who brings her offering to the Lord. So let's look and let's try to understand, let's try to understand how all these things relate together. Verse 41. We see Jesus sitting down now, right? He, he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. And there's there's a couple of camps that begin to emerge, right? You have one that is comprised of, of many rich people who put in large sums. Then we see this, this, this second camp emerge, right? Verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a, a penny, right? And so you've got two camps that emerge in this passage. You've got one, these, 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 these wealthy, right, uh, elitists perhaps, who, who bring their offering to the Lord. They put it there in the box. We see that there's an abundance of their gift. It's large sums. And then we see there's this poor widow. That's important. There's a poor widow who came and dropped in what amounted to a penny. And so what is Jesus going to have to say about this? There's a, there's a sense in which right, what we see here informs our hearts as we give to the Lord. There's an issue here of, of, of what it looks like to give, and we're going to talk about that, but there's a lot more than that here. So let's look at verse 43 together. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, teaching moment, right? Here it is, teaching moment. 
Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Well, wait a second. Because it looks like we, we, we're introduced to this one camp of people who put in large sums, and then we're, we're introduced to this widow who puts in two small copper coins amounting to a penny. And so how can Jesus say that she has contributed more? Well, at this point, we must recognize that we're talking about something outside of, of earthly economy, and we're talking about the economy of God, aren't we? We're talking about something that is altogether different. It's uniquely different. Verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, right? What they they had, right? Everything that they had out of the abundance they gave. But she, out of her poverty, has put in what? What does Jesus say? Everything, right? She has put in everything that she had. All that she had to live on. And so here's where we we can say this based on just the the concluding portion of this passage. That that we live on something or or someone that is greater than that which is is prescribed uh, value by the world, right? Does that make sense? That we live on something and in something that that is immensely more valuable than anything that the world would have to say this has value. Right? We're talking about something that is, that is transcendent in terms of its value. Because she gives away all that she had to live on. But whatever she's giving towards or for or about, whatever the motivation behind, she views as more important, as more valuable, and that which is capable of producing true life. Right? You think about what Jesus says. Jesus says, man doesn't live on bread alone, right? But every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of, of God. And so you talk about living, like we've got these two different areas, these two categories in terms of, of life. Right? Her, her life looks a certain way as a result of the sacrifice that she makes. And yet, Jesus says, man, that there is this greater life, right, essentially that's being realized and experienced and and ushered into as a result of of the work that is taking place in her in her heart. So let's let's spend just a moment comparing the scribes with the widow. The scribes get out give out of their abundance, whereas the widow gives everything that she has. One commentator, J.A. Bengal, what a stellar name, said this about what she gave. Let's just step back, right, and let's be informed by what's taking place here. She gave everything on this Passover that she was, uh, she gave everything on this Passover, right? She was uh, essentially saying to God, I love you. And all that I have is yours. Here is my heart and here is my life. Doesn't that make sense of us, of this scene and what Jesus has to say about what she gives? Right, that she has given more. Well, how could she have given more? It looks like these other guys were like definitely giving more, right? But what we understand in light of what we've seen over the past few weeks is that Jesus is not, and God is not most interested in that which we have to to give out of our abundance, but he desires our hearts, right? He desires us, all that we are. Last week, hey, what is the greatest commandment? Man, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your with all of yourself, 
Love him. Submit yourself to him. Pursue after him. We can do this because he has pursued after, after us. And so we see based on this, this quote and what we see here in these few verses that the posture of our giving matters, doesn't it? Every week, we uh, at the end of our service, right, we, we take of the Lord's Supper and we put our, our connection cards, right, into the offering box and we give tithes and offerings every, every week, right? One of the conversations that we've been having over recent weeks as a lead team within the church is this. At what point do we begin embracing online giving just because it's so helpful for so many people? To be able to, to do that. Emily Day and I had a conversation about this over email this week. It keeps coming up. And, and in my response to Emily, which was a wonderful question, I just shared with her our desire. And, of course, I cheated a little bit because I'm in Mark 12. And so I've got like a, a, a different perspective on it, on it all at this point. But, but we said, listen, one thing that we want to be sure about is that when we give, that our hearts are connected. Right? That we are connecting uh, with the Lord and that we are giving out of a heart of gratitude for what he has done for us. And so uh, you think about how that works and what we see taking place here within the life of this widow and then how that translates over into our own lives. Man, as we give every week, whether we give online, right, or whether we give in a box, right, whether we're stuffing cash in an envelope or whether we're uh, putting checks in there, whatever that looks like, we cannot divorce our hearts from what is taking place there. This is an offering to the Lord. One commentator had to say this, Kent Hughes. He said, God does not want our money. He wants us. Then he elaborates on that a little bit. He says, yet we cannot give ourselves to him apart from our money. Let me say that one more time. This is so good. God does not want our money. He wants us. That's what we saw last week. And we continue to see that emphasized this week. Yet we cannot give ourselves to him apart from our money. When we are letting go of gifts like this, right? What we're saying is that my reliance is on you, that my confidence is in you, that my trust is in you, and that my desire is to live in obedience to that which you have called me towards. And so, man, I give. We're cheerful givers. This morning, Judah, he got a like a $20 bill in the mail from like his, his grandmother like this past week for Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, Judah, right? Here's a $20 bill. And so we said, man, we're going to start teaching Judah what it looks like even now to give. And so this morning he came in with little, like, blotted up dollar bills, you know, to, like, put in the box. And so we took him over there, and he put it in, and he was just like, I mean, it was awesome. Like, he was just so excited to, like, drop something in the hole, right? And so he's missing a lot of what we're talking about here. But it was the cheerful giver aspect that I just stepped back, and I'm like, man, what a great picture. You know, like that's what, it, that's what it looks like to live in light of this greater realization of all that God has given to us, for us, through Christ. We can continue on and we can compare Christ with the scribes, right? Whereas the scribes exploit the widows, Christ elevates the widow. And in fact, we see a widow who, for all practical purposes, seems to be working her way through the crowd to just drop in her gift and then to walk away, right? Her offering, not seeking acclaim, 
Now, seeking recognition, only what is most unique about this story? She finds it. Right? She is elevated by Christ, where those who are giving out of this abundance, who are failing to connect their heart with that which is taking place here, are, are, are all but forgotten or at least highlighted in a negative light, we can say. We see that the widow is elevated, right? that she is lifted up, that she is exalted, and that she is remembered throughout the ages. Here we are, 2018, in Carrollton, Georgia, reading about this widow. Right? That's insane. That's really intense. Christ, he contrasts the greed of the religious with great generosity. Right? Consider the generosity of Christ. That's something that we talk about all the time. Consider his sacrifice on the cross for his people. Great generosity displayed by Christ. Whereas we see greed displayed from the religious. We see that the widow will not be forgotten, but she is entombed in time and space. Hey, the grass withers and the flower fades, but what does the word of God do? Man, it remains forever, right? It remains forever. It stands forever. And we see now, here we are again, we're reading of this widow. Whereas the religious leaders oftentimes took advantage of the widows for what they could give them and what they could do. And then after they had just wrung them dry, they set them off to the side. We see that Christ does not do that. Right? That, that Christ does not forget the widow. Right? But that he remembers, that he sees, that he observes, that he highlights. We see that the widow gives everything. Think about what, how this informs our understanding of Christ. Christ gives everything. The widow's gift is given in faith. And we see as a result that it is pleasing to the Lord. We see as we observe Christ's gift, himself given in confidence that the Father right, might, might raise him up again is pleasing to the Lord. We see one who exploits, and we see one who exalts. Jesus, he praises the sacrificial devotion of the widow. While the religious devour and exploit them, Jesus can do this. Right? He, can, he can praise her sacrificial devotion because, get this, he understands sacrifice. He understands sacrifice, and in light of this, he's able to praise the sacrificial devotion of the widow. This widow displays devotion and dependence to God and on God, honoring God and depending on him. And so we look at this passage and we don't walk away and go, man, the widow is the hero. No, we walk away and we go, Christ is the hero. Right? Because Christ undoes all of the brokenness observable in these passages. Right? This, these failed expectations of who the Christ is to be. Right? He corrects that and he, he builds it up. Right? He addresses the evil of the religious leaders and then he elevates this widow. This is one note that I took this past week. Here it is. This is right here. Kirk's notes, raw and uncut. Let's consider the story of God as we close out our time here in this place. God created us to live in a world absent of sin and death. Right? We see that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. 
right? He created us to live in a world in which there was no such thing as a widow. Only because of sin, we're confronted with death. And as a result, those who are left behind, like the widow in this passage. In this story, however, we see one group who have exploited the hurting for selfish gain, taking from them and then forgetting them. However, in Christ, we see a sacrificial servant who is aware of the sorrow and sin within and is at work on a people stepping in and taking on himself our sin and the Father's wrath so that by and in faith those who call out for forgiveness might receive the eternal reward of our Savior and King. Who does what? Who brings us back into one day God's design and intent for his creation and world. This is what he's doing. This is the redemptive narrative. This is what God is accomplishing by way of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. And so as we close our time and we ask, what do we do in light of what we observe in this passage? Man, we say this, see the Christ of Scripture. See the Christ of Scripture. Follow, confess, and surrender to him. Heed the warning of Christ as those who have uh, as those who have the availability of his gospel. And finally, embrace the elevation of Christ. Embrace the elevation of Christ in this life and fully one day as sufficient. His elevation of his people by way of his sacrifice for us. He lifts us up. He lifts us up out of death. He robs it of its sting and he ensures for God's people an eternal reward and inheritance that he keeps. That no thief steals like all of our juice. For those of you who know that story. This passage starts with the elevation of the Messiah. And it ends with the elevation of the widow. And I think that it's really interesting how those two things follow. Because of the elevation of the Messiah, we see made possible the elevation of the widow. Let's pray together.